turn with me to Revelation chapter 4, and we will begin. I've shared this quote with you before from A.W. Tozier in his wonderful book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He opens up on page 1. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If he's right, think about that. What comes into your mind and mine when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Is it a vision of the majesty and the glory and the greatness and the sovereignty and the goodness of God that comes forth from the scriptures? Or is it a vision of your own making? Obviously, it's bound to be a mixture of both, huh? We are fallen creatures, and we cannot take it all in. But this quote is stinging as well. It's been said, In the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, man has been returning the favor. Creating God in our own image. What we would like him to be. In chapter 4, we're going to see a vision of God in heaven. And hopefully it will help us shape our vision of God a little bit closer to the way he really is. After these things... I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Now, that first voice which John had heard, that was the voice of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, and here it is Jesus saying to him again, Come up here, and I will show you what, may, what must take place after these things, immediately I was in the Spirit. He was in this prophetic spirit, if you will, Jesus Christ inviting him to see behind the scenes into, we're going to see, the very throne room of God. And John is going to tell us both what he sees and what he hears. We go into this with a little bit of trepidation. I like what scholar Tom Schreiner says about this. Commentators have attempted to find a one-to-one -one correspondence between the descriptions in Revelation and the attributes of God. The danger in such an attempt is arbitrariness and lack of clear evidence for the specific identifications proposed. John probably didn't expect us to be so precise in untangling the portrait given, intending readers to be affected by the general impact of the vision. I like that, but I'm, I'm going to break the rule. I'm going to give you maybe some words that come to my mind as I look at this and try to interpret it but I may well be wrong. 
and let's just, as I am, just still be affected by the general impact of the vision. Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. That's the first thing that John saw. A throne is the locus of ruling authority. It's the place on which the king sits, the one who rules over all. And this throne is in heaven. Whoever sits upon this throne is the one who rules over all things and has all dominion. He has, in my word, unmatched authority. The second thing he sees is one sitting on the throne. We're not told who this one is until we get down to verse 8. Let's go ahead and jump there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So this one who is sitting on the throne is the Lord God Almighty. He is described reverently, but discreetly. Richard Bauckham puts it like this, the unknowable transcendence of God is protected by focusing instead on the throne itself and what goes on around it. And so John is not necessarily going to give us a description of what God in particular looks like, but he is going to give us a bit. He's going to say that he was like and he was in the appearance. Verse 3, he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. A jasper stone, as I understand it, is greenish, opaque stone. But the scholars also say a range of colors may be possible. A sardius or a carnelian, reddish brown, orange stone. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Bright green, maybe more familiar to us. We see these kinds of stones used to describe God in Exodus 28 and 39 and Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 21 in the age to come. And together they seem to speak of the precious value of God, but probably more so his in, incredible, indescribable beauty. I saw a throne, and one sitting on a throne, and there were beautiful, dazzling, sparkling, indescribable colors of beauty. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. These 24 elders are prominent around the throne in the book of Revelation, but their identity is obviously 
disputed. Again, so many of the details of Revelation, we're not exactly sure what we're meant to understand them to be. Are these humans who are in heaven representative humans that might represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament? Maybe so. The guys I read seem to like that they are a royal council seated in a circle around God's throne and that probably not meant to be understood as humans who have been exalted there with God, but a council of heavenly beings who surround God's throne. So angelic in nature, certainly they are obviously created by God. They surround his throne. They are clothed in white garments because only those who are pure can be in the presence of God. They have golden crowns on their heads, which if they were humans, it could be referencing their rewards or if they are simply a council of heavenly beings created by God to be around him, that these represent their exalted status. But what we do see them doing, and we'll get to it here in just a moment, is worshiping God. I think of them maybe as his royal retinue. Those who surround him, you know, you, you and I have been to local things here in Katy, and you see a local politician or a local important person, and even these local guys, these small town local guys, have a retinue of people around them, right? They got handlers, they got protectors, they got do this and do thatters. Speaks a bit to their impressiveness, their stateliness. But of course, here is God upon his throne, surrounded by these 24 who we will see in just a moment. Praise him. Verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. The storm represents God's awesome presence. When he came down upon Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, same sorts of imagery. A couple months ago, Tara and I went to dinner with a young couple here in our church, and we were over at Gringo's, and we knew that a storm was moving in. We enjoyed the dinner together, but then we had to cut it short because you could look out the window and see it was a coming. And we all got up, we left, walked to our car, not a drop of rain, but a half mile later, we were in, in my, I used to say short life, I'm getting old now, in my 50 years, 49, it was the most ferocious thing I've ever been in. And I've been in some storms like all of you have. It felt like we were right in the middle of it. Not just tons of rain where you couldn't see and hard winds that kind of shook the car. And not just thunder and lightning in the distance. It felt like we were right in the middle. And I was scared. That's what a storm can do. 
This seems to speak of God's ferocious power. And it's interesting, whenever we get into the seal judgments, the, bowl jud- the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, at each of the climax of those judgments, we will see the flashes of lightning, the sounds and the peals of thunder, reminding us that the awesome power of God in bringing his judgments upon the world are coming from no place else other than the throne of Almighty God. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. I mean, what, what must this have looked like? A throne and one sitting on the throne in beautiful color surrounded by 24 thrones with these elders in white garments and golden crowns. And coming forth from the throne is this storm of thunder and lightning. And then these seven burning lamps, which are the seven spirits of God. We saw that in chapter 1. And so clearly to us, the seven spirits of God, seven speaking to the perfection and the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. Some think that maybe John here is referencing back to Zechariah chapter 4. To the lampstand there in Zechariah chapter 4 and the pronouncement that God's will would be done. Remember this famous verse? It's from Zechariah 4. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. My work is not going to get done by your might, or your power, my work will get done because of my spirit. If that's what's in mind, maybe this speaks to the unstoppable ability of God to accomplish all of his purposes. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass like crystal. One said it appears as a gleaming translucent floor stretching out in front of God's throne, reinforcing the astounding impression of the glory and the purity of heaven. Grant Osborne said it like this, the emphasis is on God's awesome vastness his transcendence, and his holiness that separate him from his creation. It's as if there is God, and here are we, separated by this beautiful sea of crystal. His impressive unapproachability And then what else? And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. 
and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Amazing stuff, right? If you're familiar with Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel describes something similar to this. There are differences in his vision of the heavenly throne room. And of course, Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah, when he sees God upon the throne and the seraphim with six wings flying around God. So these are angelic beings of some sort. What do they represent? We're not exactly sure. I like those who see in the lion. That is the what? That's, that's the king of the beasts. The calf or the ox is the most powerful of the domesticated animals. Man is the height of God's creation. And of course, the eagle. Nothing soars like the eagle. Maybe, just maybe, these represent the varied, beautiful, wonderful, glorious creation of God. And what do they do? We're about to see. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise all of creation that, as we sang earlier, is groaning under the weight of sin, longs for the day that it, too, will be released from its bondage and will praise God forevermore. Maybe this speaks to his unquestioned worthiness of praise. They have six wings. We learn of the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. With, with two wings, those seraphim would cover their eyes. Probably the idea that they cannot look upon the awesome holiness of God. With two, they would cover their feet. Probably the idea is that when you go out to serve God or when you go out to do your your work, you come back with dirty feet and, and you don't want to be dirty in the presence of God and so they would, they would cover their feet. It may be why when, when Moses was there before God at, at, at the burning bush, take off your sandals, you, you, you're standing on holy ground. His sandals would have been dirty. With two, they flew, probably speaking to their um, continual service to God just ready to do his bidding. It's an amazing vision, isn't it? Of a throne and a beautiful one sitting upon the throne surrounded by 24 elders with, with storm coming out from it with the seven lamps which are the seven spirits of God with these, the sea of glass out in front of him, these four creatures surrounding him. We're about to hear what John heard, but we just got a glance into chapter 5 because the vision doesn't stop with chapter 4. It continues. Joining the four living creatures and the 24 elders, there will be 
angels. Then I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And then joining them will be every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. And of course, in chapter 5, we will see the lion and the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes in church, we use the word ineffable. You ever heard that? Ineffable. It means too great or extreme to be expressed or described in words. Well, I tried. What did John hear? Verse 8, four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. We just sang it, and we sing it all the time. Holy means that God is other, distinct. It does not mean that he is first in class. Like there's this class of deities and he's the best of them. It means he's in a class all his own. There is none like God. And these creatures sing holy, holy, holy. Repeating it over and over and over again for emphasis. Our God is the creator of all things. He is the Holy One. He is not to be trifled with. He is matchless in His glory. And He is the Almighty. He has absolute dominion and sovereignty over all. And He is the one who was, He has always been, who is and who is to come. He will always be and in the context of the book of Revelation, he's the one to come through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to bring in his eternal kingdom. In the judgment of his enemies, in the vindication of his people, in the establishment of a new heavens and a new earth from which he will reign forever and forever. And with the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. And let's just make the point. Whenever it says that they give him glory and give him honor and give him thanks, it's not because he doesn't have it and they have to give it to him. They are simply recognizing and acknowledging what is already there. Amen? When the creatures, the four living creatures, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, when they do that, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. 
and will worship him who lives forever and ever. John just said that. He wants us to get it. To him who lives forever and ever. Him who lives forever and ever. Will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. They fall down before him, a sign of humble adoration. And they cast their crowns before him. A recognition of all that they have, whether it is rewards for their faithfulness or whether it is signs of their exalted status, they know that it comes from God and they give it right back to him. Casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. So, Redeemer, let us be humbled before our great God. And let us worship Him. J.I. Packer, in his great book, Knowing God, said this. Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. He is personal. But unlike us, He is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for His people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that He shows towards them, and He does, the Bible never lets us lose sight of His majesty and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. In the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, man has been returning the favor. May God help you and me to have an image of God that more and more and more approaches the vision of our God from the pages of Scripture. This one who is holy and who is the Almighty, who was and who is to come, who is and who is to come, who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, who created all things and holds them all together and directs them to their appointed end, this magnificent, matchless, glorious, sovereign God, we shall see when we come to chapter 5, is also the one who sent his son, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, to redeem sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may it be 
that when we think about our God, something like this comes to mind. Authority, beauty, stateliness, power, ability, worthiness, holiness, almighty, great. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.